One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to True North True Crime. This is part two of our Halloween episode featuring the crimes of Dr. Cream. If you haven't listened to episode one of this case, you're going to need to go back and listen to it now. Otherwise, it's not going to make much sense. So we left off where Thomas Neal Cream had finally been arrested, charged, and convicted to life in prison at the Illinois State Penitentiary for one of his crimes, which was the murder of Daniel Stott. But as we detailed, Daniel was just one of his many suspected victims. And this story is far from over. So let's go ahead and get right into the second half of Dr. Cream. Thomas Neal Cream arrived at Joliet or Illinois State Penitentiary on November 1st, 1881. When he arrived, he was ordered to strip and was carefully examined by the clerks at the prison. They noted all of his identifying features. He was 182 pounds with a solid build, and in their notes, they declared he had massive jaws and chin. His sentence was recorded as his natural life. He was then made to bathe in an open room before being issued his prison outfit complete with horizontal black and white stripes. His picture was taken, and he was provided with his new identity. Inmate number 4,374. Now, the Illinois State Penitentiary, as we mentioned, was notorious. It was one of America's toughest prisons and housed some of the worst criminals in the nation. But by the time Cream was locked up, Joliet had improved its treatment of its residents. Things like gagging, whipping, and dousing with cold water had been replaced with solitary confinement as punishment for unruly criminals. But the rules that inmates had to follow were still daunting. They were not allowed to speak to anyone unless they had permission from the staff. Lights were out by 9 p.m. And inmates were only allowed to bathe once a week in the summer and once every two weeks in the winter. If anyone disobeyed, it meant that they would lose their weekly rations of things like candles or tobacco or find themselves in solitary. Cream was escorted to his cell, a cramped enclosure resembling a stone coffin, measuring seven feet in height, seven feet in depth, and a mere four and a half feet in width. Inside, he found an iron-framed bunk bed, a couple of stools, and a shelf designed to accommodate books and papers. This space was barely sufficient for a single person, although a limited number of inmates enjoyed the luxury of a solitary cell. His sleeping arrangements consisted of a thin straw mattress covered by a coarse woolen blanket that matched the stripes on his uniform. He was provided with two buckets, one for washing and the other for use as a toilet. Over time, he would become accustomed to the lingering odors of urine and feces. The cells had no windows, only a small opening leading to the roof for ventilation. Every morning, except on Sundays, a bell would abruptly wake Cream at 5.45 a.m., and this would signal the start of the workday. Men hurriedly dressed, washed, and tidied their beds. Fifteen minutes later, guards unlocked the cell doors, and inmates were led across the yard to dispose of their toilet buckets at sewer openings. They marched in single file, with synchronized steps to and from work and meals. Cream's breakfast consisted of coffee, bread, and stew or hash, 
which he would quickly consume in his cell. At a quarter to seven, a steam whistle would sound and Cream headed down to his workplace. His workday lasted from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. with a 40-minute lunch break, typically featuring a substantial meal of meat and potatoes. Following a light supper of bread, coffee, or tea in his cell, Cream had the opportunity to rest or read by candlelight until 9 p.m., and then the daily routine would repeat. Four years later, in March of 1885, in the Belvedere Standard, there was a small notice posted that stated the following. Notice is hereby given that the undersigned intends to apply to the governor of Illinois for a pardon. The name under the notice was Thomas N. Cream. With the help of his father, William Cream, and the British government, Cream was begging the Illinois governor to release him early. However, on December 31, 1885, the governor made his decision. Cream would remain in prison to continue serving his sentence. Cream was no doubt enraged by this decision, having been convinced that the British government being involved would work in his favor. While incarcerated, Cream embraced Catholicism after having forsaken his Presbyterian beliefs years earlier. He subsequently confessed that his motivation for the conversion was to increase his prospects of receiving a pardon. Approximately a year following his conversion, he received news that held the promise of expediting his release. Cream's father, William Cream, died on May 12, 1887, at the age of 64 years old. His estate was valued at roughly $60,000, which is the equivalent of about $1.9 million today. However, Thomas Neal Cream would inherit nothing from his father's estate after being left out of the will. A Quebec City businessman named Thomas Davidson, who was a close friend of Cream's father, was the executor of the estate, and he made it his personal mission to find a way to get his late friend's son out of prison. So Thomas began looking for evidence that was collected in the Stott case and became convinced that Cream was actually innocent of the charges against him. Thomas Davidson reached out once more to the Illinois governor and he assured those in power that Cream would leave their state if released and go overseas to restart his life. This was seemingly enough to convince them to release Cream. So on July 31st, 1891, Ten years after he entered Joliet, he left as a free man. His first stop, after being released from prison, was a private detective's office in Chicago, where he hired a PI to look into Julia Stott's whereabouts. Now, nobody can say exactly why Dr. Cream wanted to locate her, but luckily the private detective was unable to provide any details of her location, and Cream was never able to get his hands on her. It was October 1st, 1891, when Thomas Neal Cream arrived in London, England, and his intention was to start over. He settled in the Lambeth neighborhood, which was known as an area that was struggling with crime, poverty, and most importantly, was home to many sex workers and brothels. It was a cold, wet, and dreary night on the Lambeth streets near Waterloo Station on October 13th, 1891 and a woman stood at her post, watching the droves of passerbys making their way to and from the many trains coming and going. Men would stop to engage with the woman, whose name was Ellen Donworth. After they had conversed with her, they would disappear into a house, and a short time later, they would reemerge, and Ellen would be back outside at her post, waiting for her next client. It was around 8 p.m. when a man named James Stiles witnessed Ellen Donworth fall forward onto the pavement before her. He ran to her aid, and a policeman who was passing by asked if she needed the hospital, and she responded that she wanted to go home. James helped Ellen back to her residence, and along the way, she seemed to be in pain. He got her back to her bed, where she began to go into violent spasms. Between convulsions, Ellen was able to tell James that a tall, dark, cross-eyed man gave her something to drink, and the bottle contained white stuff. When a medical assistant arrived on the scene, he immediately recognized Ellen's symptoms as being akin to strychnine poisoning. He knew she needed help that he was unable to provide at her bedside and told her that she needed to go to the hospital, but she continued to insist that she wanted to die at home. Her pleas were ignored, however, and she was carried into a cab. But by the time they had made it to St. Thomas's hospital, Ellen was dead. 
Ellen Donworth was just 19 years old, and she was the daughter of a laborer and became a mother at 16 years old. Heartbreakingly, this child died not long after it was born, and the father of this child was also a teenager. The two had been struggling to make ends meet and were living off of the proceeds of Ellen's sex work at the time of her death. When the autopsy on Ellen's remains was finished, the tests performed on her stomach contents confirmed suspicions. Traces of strychnine and morphine had been found, and Ellen had been poisoned. As an investigation began into Ellen's death, more details came to light. A woman who had been lodging at the same residence as Ellen gave more information about this mysterious cross-eyed stranger. She said that Ellen had received letters from this man, and he had arranged a meeting with her on the night she died. The letters disappeared from Ellen's room, but she recalled the writing being more like a lady's than a gentleman's. The coroner had also received strange letters in recent days, letters claiming that Ellen Donworth had been the victim of homicide. Quote, to G.P. Wyatt, coroner, I am writing to say that if you and your satellites fail to bring the murderer of Ellen Donworth, alias Ellen Linnell, late of 8 Duke Street, to justice, I am willing to give you such assistance as will bring the murderer to justice, provided your government is willing to pay me $300,000 for my services. No pay unless successful. A. O'Brien, detective. Now, this dollar amount was ridiculous for the time period. It would amount to tens of millions of dollars today. So the coroner made the assertion that he was being pranked and put the letter aside. After no more leads surfaced, it was assumed that Ellen's death had been a suicide. One week later, on October 21st, 1891, screams woke Lucy Rose from her sleep. Lucy was living at a residence as a live-in maid and went to wake her landlady, Emma Phillips. The two women made their way upstairs to where the screaming was coming from. They entered Matilda Clover's bedroom. They found a disturbing scene inside. Matilda, on her bed, convulsing with her eyes rolling back in her head. When she came to, Matilda told the women, That man, Fred, has poisoned me. He gave me some pills that would prevent me from catching the disease. Matilda was referring to venereal disease. The symptoms continued as Lucy and Emma sat beside Matilda's bed. Bring me my baby. I think I'm dying, she cried. At this, the landlady left the house to find a doctor. It took hours to find a medical man who was available to return to the residence to treat Matilda. Francis Coppin, a doctor's assistant, made the following observations when he was treating Matilda Clover. Quote, she twitched violently. She had a quick pulse, was bathed in perspiration, and was trembling. He concluded that Matilda was suffering from epileptic fits and convulsions due to alcohol poisoning. At 9.15 a.m. on October 21, 1891, Matilda was dead. When Matilda's regular doctor attended the scene later that day, he too believed that she had died from alcohol poisoning, even though the women who had been there the night before tried to tell the doctors that she had taken some unknown pills. The doctors didn't seem to take their concerns seriously. Eventually, Matilda's doctor wrote her death certificate, which declared, I attended Matilda Clover during her last illness. To the best of my knowledge and belief, the cause of her death was primarily delirium tremens, secondly, syncope, or loss of consciousness and heart failure due to severe symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. So not only did the doctor lie about being present during her illness, he also had been told that Matilda had been drinking heavily on the night she died, which directly contradicts his assertion that she died of alcohol withdrawal. Now, Matilda Clover was buried at the Tooting Cemetery on October 27, 1891, six days after she died. Her coffin had a metal plate which said M. Clover, 27 years old. Fourteen other bodies in caskets were stacked on top of hers in a grave numbered 2215H. Adding to the tragedy, a local newspaper called Matilda, quote, a miserable street outcast whose life was of no particular value to anyone. After her doctor submitted her death certificate as natural causes, there was no need for the coroner or the police to look any further into what happened to Matilda Clover. Nobody looked at the fact that she had drank all night, yet somehow died of alcohol withdrawal, and nobody questioned the pills. 
It was late October of 1891 when a woman named Louisa Harvey stood outside St. James Hall as had been arranged. A tall man approached, wearing a long black overcoat, a top hat, and glasses. Louisa took note of the top hat, which was a sign of wealth at the time, and also the gold wristwatch the man was wearing. She knew he was likely a man with money, and he'd be an excellent customer. The two exchanged small talk as they made their way towards the Paris Hotel. She told him her name was Lou Harvey, and Thomas Neal Cream didn't bother to give his name in return. The next morning, as the two were leaving the hotel, Cream gave her three pounds, and this was a significant amount of money for a sex worker at the time. To her delight, Cream said he wanted to see her again that night, and the two made plans to meet around 7.30 p.m. near the Thames Embankment. As they went their separate ways, Cream told Louisa that he would bring some pills that evening that would clear up her complexion. When they met later that evening, the two shared a glass of wine at a nearby pub before making their way to the riverbank. It was here that Cream pulled out a bundled-up tissue that contained two oblong capsules. He told her, don't bite them, swallow them as they are. Louisa followed his orders, and he demanded to see her hand afterwards to ensure she had indeed taken the pills. After he was certain that she had swallowed them, his demeanor changed. He abruptly told her that he needed to be back at the hospital, but she should treat herself to a night at the theater on his dime. He let her know that he would meet her at the music hall once the show had ended at 11. Louisa had been wary of this new customer. So wary, in fact, that she had a male friend of hers keep an eye on her while she was with him. Louisa had fooled the doctor. She never took the pills he gave her, and instead, as he looked away, she dumped them into the river behind her back. At 11 p.m., Louisa stood outside the music hall waiting for Cream to show up, but he never did. It had been just two weeks since Thomas Neal Cream arrived in London, and to his dismay, neither Matilda nor Louisa's deaths had made the newspaper. The authorities had picked up on Ellen Donworth's death and arrested a man named William Slater in connection with her murder. This gave Cream an idea. Why not frame other wealthy or prominent men for the murders that he committed? He figured they would pay him large sums of money for his silence, and if they refused to cooperate, he would take his evidence to the authorities. Cream, satisfied with his plan, began writing more letters. I mean, this guy loved to write letters. On November 6th, 1891, a letter signed with the name H. Bain arrived at the offices of W.H. Smith and Son, who was a leading bookseller in Britain. In the letter were accusations that evidence tying Frederick Smith to the murder of Ellen Donworth had been found among her personal items. The letter goes on to say, If they ever become public property or wind up in the hands of the police, they will surely convict you. Think of the shame and the disgrace it will bring on your family if you are arrested and put in prison for this crime. The letter went on to say that if he retained the author as his legal advisor, Smith would be protected. The letter ended by ordering Smith to put a notice on the window of the office that said, Mr. Fred Smith wishes to see Mr. Bain, the barrister, at once. The writer assured him that if he saw this notice in the window, he'd have a private interview with him. But instead, Smith and his colleagues notified the police, who set up a trap for the writer of the letter. They posted the notice in the window, but no one ever showed up to meet Smith. Cream apparently also wrote a letter to the magistrate, who had convicted William Slater for the murder of Ellen Donworth. This letter said, Slater, the man who you have repeatedly remanded, is absolutely innocent. Donworth's killer was Frederick Smith. I have evidence enough to hang Smith and will make it hot for the police if they do not do their duty in this matter. Now, when the magistrate showed this letter to other law enforcement members, they decided not to act on any of the information in the letter, and instead they filed it away. They were unaware that Frederick Smith had also received a threatening letter. Cream wasn't finished, though. William Broadbent, who was a renowned cardiologist, received a letter on November 28, 1891. This letter accused him of poisoning the Lambeth sex worker, Matilda Clover. 
Again, the letter stated that evidence incriminating William Broadbent had been found in Matilda's personal effects, and the author of the letter threatened that he would hand over this evidence to the police unless he was paid $2,500. The author, M. Malone, this time said, I am not humbugging you. You know well enough that an accusation of this sort will ruin you forever. M. Malone instructed William Broadbent to put an ad in the paper. William instead contacted the police at Scotland Yard, and again, they set out to trap the man who was attempting blackmail in the letter. But like before, no one ever showed up after the demands had been met. Cream also sent another letter to a countess, which also went nowhere. The police, seemingly unable to tie these three letters together, took no further action at the time. In the late fall of 1891, Cream was in for a shock. Louisa Harvey, you might remember the woman who outsmarted Cream by faking taking the pills he gave her, was once again out in central London, and she was scanning the men walking by when she spotted a familiar face. As Cream walked towards her, she approached him, and again the two went to a nearby pub to have a glass of wine. As they drank together, she realized he didn't recognize her. Don't you know me? she asked him. He replied saying no and asked her who she was. You promised to meet me outside the Oxford Music Hall. I'm Lou Harvey. At this, she watched the color drain from his face as he quickly spun around on his heels and walked away. In November of 1891, Thomas Neal Cream met a woman named Laura Sabatini, a young woman from Berkhamsted, who was learning the dressmaking trade. Despite his previous habits with sex workers, Cream courted and proposed to Laura within a few weeks. Making a vow to be faithful to her, she accepted his proposal. But back home in Quebec City, people who knew Cream began to hear murmurs about disturbing allegations tied to his name. George Matthews, a Presbyterian minister who knew the Cream family alongside Thomas Davidson, who was Cream's father's close friend and executor of his estate that we spoke about earlier, and also Cream's brother Daniel all began to doubt their decision to send him to England. They feared that Cream was in no state to be at large or in the public, and they devised a plan to get him back to Canada for the time being. They offered him £15 to help him buy a ticket back to Quebec, and Cream, who had already gone through all of his money, accepted their offer. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We will return with the conclusion of Dr. Cream. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And we are back. So on the ship that took him from London, England to Quebec City, Cream made some acquaintances, one of whom was named William Seller, who had the following to say about Cream. He was very restless and excitable. He talked incessantly about women, how he met them on London streets and in theaters, took them to dinner at restaurants and slept with them. He was a bad man with no refinement and an utter absence of morality. Once he was back in Quebec City on January 20th, 1892, Cream stayed at a hotel. He invited a fellow guest from the hotel back into his room and showed this man his trunk. He opened it and pulled out a bottle which contained tiny white crystals. Cream tells the man that it's poison and he gives it to women to get them out of the family way. The man also observes a fake beard and when he asks Cream what he uses that for, Cream replied, to disguise my identity so that women would not recognize me again. While at this hotel, Cream also provided a maid named Matilda Nadeau with two pills that he declared she needed. 
When Matilda took one, she immediately experienced a burning pain in her stomach and blotches began to appear on her face. She felt a horrible sensation all over her body and noticed that her hands were clenching wildly. She drank milk in desperation to soothe her stomach and it worked. She never took the second pill. It was late March 1892 when Cream returned to London, England. His family in Quebec City clearly no longer wanted him there, and so armed with more money from his estate and a fresh batch of poison and drugs from the druggist G.F. Harvey, he was on his way back to London. Police Constable George Comley was on duty in April of 1892 when around 2 a.m. he observed a man leaving a residence at 118 Stamford Street. This wasn't unusual, as there were countless brothels in the area, but Comley took notice of this particular man as he was impeccably dressed in a black overcoat, a top hat, and gold-rimmed glasses. He pegged the man to be roughly 5'9 or 5'10 and in his 40s. He also noticed that the man seemed to be walking away with purpose. Half an hour later, Comley observed another officer running out of the doorway of the same building he saw the well-dressed man leaving from. The officer had a woman in his arms and yelled, there's one more inside. When George Comley entered the premises, he found Alice Marsh lying face down in the hallway. He picked her up in his arms and brought her out to a cab that was headed for the hospital. But by the time they arrived, Alice Marsh had already died. The other woman Comley had seen the other police officer carrying was being treated in the hospital by a Dr. Wyman. Her name was Emma Shrivel and she was having her stomach pumped. The doctor told police that the two women must have ingested some powerful poison. Emma was still alive and was also able to tell the police that she and Alice had been spending their evening in the company of a man who provided them with three long pills each. She confessed that they had taken the pills, ate some tinned salmon, and went to bed. The two of them then became violently ill, so much so that they couldn't sit or stand. She was also able to provide the police with a name, Fred. George Comley described the man that he had seen leaving their residence earlier that night, and Emma agreed that the description of the man matched the man she knew as Fred. That was all the information they were able to obtain from Emma, because she died three hours after arriving at the hospital. A police inspector figured this was an open-and-shut case and decided that the two women had died after eating tinned salmon that had been tainted. Not the pills, but the tinned salmon. Now, this was a common occurrence in the 19th century, so the doctor actually protested. He had watched Emma Shrivel suffer horrible seizures before she finally passed away, which he knew was a symptom of a more insidious cause. Strychnine poisoning. Not bad salmon. One of the officers spearheading the investigation into the double poisoning case, Dr. George Harvey, had previously worked on the death of Ellen Donworth. Three incidences involving sex workers in Lambeth within six months. Was there a possibility that a single individual was responsible for all of them? The remains of Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh were analyzed by Dr. Thomas Stevenson, and after a thorough investigation and testing, he concluded that the women had indeed died of a fatal overdose from ingesting strychnine. He also found no issue with the tinned salmon that the two women had eaten the night before. This finding forced inquiries into the deaths of the two women to commence. Police began questioning druggists, doctors, and surgeons who may have remembered selling strychnine as well as oblong-shaped pill capsules to a man matching the description of Fred. This unfortunately gained them no new leads, so the police switched tactics. They endeavored to question sex workers in the area, and in their efforts, they talked to Lucy Rose, who had been the one to discover Matilda Clover upstairs on the night of October 21st, 1891. She gave the police the description of a man she knew had visited Matilda that evening and it matched the man they were looking for. This was their first solid lead, and so on April 30th, 1892, Matilda Clover's remains were exhumed for further processing. It was a warm evening in May of 1892 when Constable George Comley was again on shift. 
This time, he was outside the Canterbury Music Hall searching the crowd for any men who piqued his interests. And he spotted one. He observed the man who was wearing glasses and seemed to be eyeing the women who passed by with a laser focus. This raised red flags for Comley, who upon further inspection of the man, realized he recognized him as the gentleman who had been leaving the residence of Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel before they died. He decided to follow the man, who led them to a residence at 103 Lambeth Palace Road, where he watched him pull a key from his coat and let himself inside. Five nights later, officers watched the residence at 103 Lambeth Palace Road intently. They watched Cream go and meet another sex worker by the name of Violet Beverly, and after Cream left her company, the police followed up with Violet. She told them that the man claimed to be an agent for an American druggist and that he had shown her his leather case filled with different drugs, and he also had concocted an American drink for her, which she refused to try. The police found out that Violet had another meeting scheduled with this man, and she agreed to find out more information about him to relay back to the investigators. Before long, an American man showed up at a police station with the intention of filing a complaint. He told the police that his friend was being harassed by law enforcement, and he added that his friend was a doctor whom he had met a few weeks earlier. He shared with investigators that during a night out with his friend, they noticed that police seemed to be surveilling them. And when he asked why that might be, his friend told him a disturbing story involving murder. When police asked for this friend's name, he replied, Dr. Thomas Neal. This man explained that Dr. Thomas Neal had told him that another man who also lived at the 103 Lambeth Palace Road residence by the name of Walter J. Harper was, quote, well known among a low class of prostitutes. He also mentioned that Walter Harper was a medical student at St. Thomas's Hospital and was performing abortions. He said that Walter had confessed all of this to his friend, Dr. Thomas Neal, because he was being blackmailed by Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel after Walter had allegedly impregnated a friend of theirs and then killed her due to a botched abortion attempt. He also said that Walter had asked Dr. Thomas Neal to buy some strychnine for him as he wanted to get rid of Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel, but there was more. Dr. Thomas Neal claimed Walter Harper had poisoned more women, including Ellen Donworth, Matilda Clover, and Louisa Harvey. This was a light bulb moment for investigators who had just met with the coroner, Dr. Wyatt. And the coroner called them because he had received a letter that stated the following. Dear Sir, I beg to inform you that one of my operators has positive proof that Walter Harper, a medical student of St. Thomas's Hospital and a son of Dr. Harper of Bear Street, Barnstaple, is responsible for the deaths of Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel. He having poisoned these girls with strychnine, this proof you can have on paying my bill for the services to George Clark Detective 20 Coxpur Street, Charing Cross, to whom I will give the proof on his paying my bill. Yours respectfully, W.H. Murray. Due to this letter, the police were forced to turn their attention to Walter Harper, but before long they realized that he didn't match the description of the suspect at all. So investigators compared the letters that folks had been receiving to see if the handwriting matched and also tracked down this Dr. Thomas Neal to get a sample of his handwriting. Over the next few weeks, police began to gain Cream's trust and over multiple meetings in town, they learned that he seemed to know a great deal about the Lambeth poisonings. When police brought this up in conversation with him, Cream shrugged it off and explained that he had been following the news in the papers uh, because, of course, he was a medical man, and I had taken interest in these matters. One of the police officers was able to obtain a sample of Dr. Cream's handwriting during this meeting. Cream was agreeable and provided the sample on a notably fancy piece of stationery with a watermark that said, Fairfield Superfine. It was around this time that a detective named John Bennett Tunbridge took over the case of the Lambeth poisonings at Scotland Yard. Now, Tunbridge, after researching thoroughly through the evidence, was convinced that Dr. Thomas Neal was their prime suspect. He believed that Cream had orchestrated the entire story about Walter Harper and him being blackmailed by the two victims, Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel. 
adding to Tunbridge's certainty was how perfectly Cream fit the physical descriptions of the man known as Fred, down to the distinct cross-eyed appearance which he noticed that Cream had. On May 29th, 1892, Tunbridge called Cream into the detachment under the guise of seeking further information into the claim of harassment that Cream had filed. On May 29, 1892, Tunbridge called Cream into the detachment under the guise of seeking further information into his claim of harassment. Here's a quote from Tunbridge explaining Cream. He was in a highly nervous state and trembled visibly. Now, Cream had been consuming uh, a bunch of opium and morphine at the time, and he appeared to be unraveling under the intense police scrutiny. When he declined to engage in a conversation about the poisoning cases, Tunbridge refrained from pressing further and instead asked about Cream's occupation as a salesman. Cream produced his sample case and explained some of the medications that he was selling. He emphasized that the pills from the G.F. Harvey Company were far more convenient and pleasant than the outdated method of dispensing liquid medicine by the spoonful. One bottle in particular caught Tunbridge's attention. Its label indicated that each of the small pills inside contained one-sixteenth of a grain of strychnine. Cream remarked, It would be highly dangerous for these items to fall in the hands of the general public. Now, it was after this interrogation that Tunbridge went to his superiors and said, quote, Under all the circumstances, I respectfully submit that suspicion points very strongly at present to Dr. Thomas Neal Cream as the murderer. Before long, police had the evidence they needed to make an arrest. When Cream provided them with a sample of his handwriting, the stationery was the exact same as the one that had been used to write the blackmail letters. Fairfield's superfine stationery was something none of the police had ever seen before because it was manufactured in the United States. An arrest warrant was issued, and on June 3, 1892, Tunbridge arrested Cream in his room at 103 Lambeth Palace Road. Cream exclaimed that they had the wrong man. Tunbridge had had enough of Cream's lies and showed him the matching stationery and handwriting, which was enough to shut Cream up. He was held without bail, where he would remain in custody while awaiting trial. Less than one year after Cream emerged as a free man from Joliet Prison, he was once again behind bars. And as police inspected Cream's residence, they found connections to both the U.S. and Canada. They knew it would be in their best interest to send investigators overseas to continue their search for more evidence. Inspector Frederick Smith Jarvis arrived in London, Ontario, where he learned that a woman had died mysteriously just steps away from where Dr. Cream had a medical office. Jarvis spoke to the chief of police who filled him in on the details of Catherine Gardner's death, and that was the woman who died in the outhouse. And the details were complete with the chemical burns on her face and the bottle of chloroform that was found next to her. Unfortunately, there was still no concrete evidence that police could use to tie Cream to Catherine's presumed homicide. But back in England, police received word from authorities in Chicago that Cream had been implicated in murder cases in their city as well. Frank Murray, the superintendent of the agency's Chicago branch, had perused news articles about Cream's apprehension in the local newspapers. He believed that the individual who was using the alias Thomas Neal was a previous client with a history of serving a prison sentence at the Illinois State Penitentiary for murder. Inspector Tunbridge made a visit to a druggist on Parliament Street in London to investigate the vial of strychnine pills that Cream had brought from America. Surprisingly, the staff recognized Cream and confirmed his previous visits the prior fall. They provided an order form in Cream's handwriting, revealing that he had purchased a significant amount of strychnine just days before Ellen Donworth's death on October 13th, a quantity large enough to be lethal for several people. Additionally, Cream had bought oblong-shaped gelatin capsules. The New York Times named Cream as a suspect in the murders of Matilda Clover, Ellen Donworth, Emma Shrivel, and Alice Marsh, hinting at the possibility of murder charges against him. The Buffalo Morning Press went even further, labeling him Jack the Poisoner. An inquest was held for Matilda Clover's murder. Laura Sabatini, who was at one time engaged to Dr. Cream, also testified. 
She confirmed her engagement to Cream and revealed that she had helped him draft letters accusing Walter Harper of killing Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel. She stated that Cream had used the alias William Murray in these letters, leaving Sabatini puzzled about his motives. Meanwhile, Louisa Harvey was reading the newspaper when she came across her own name in an article about a doctor who was poisoning sex workers. Shocked, she wondered if this could have anything to do with the man who tried to give her pills in 1891. She reached out to the police informing them that she was still alive and wanted to testify at the inquest. On July 7, 1892, Louisa found herself on the witness stand where she spoke in a calm manner. Cream, by contrast, had his head down while he was frantically writing down notes about everything that Louisa was saying. Louisa told the court that Cream had attempted to get her to take pills during their time together and how she fooled him into thinking that she had consumed them. Her testimony seemed to convince the jury as well, who stated at the end of the inquest, We are unanimously agreed that Matilda Clover died of strychnine poisoning and that the poison was administered by Dr. Thomas Neal Cream with intent to destroy life. Again, Cream showed no reaction. Now, this was simply a non-criminal death inquest. So, Cream's murder trial started on October 17, 1892 at London's Central Criminal Court, known, of course, as the Old Bailey. He faced seven new indictments, including for the murder of Matilda Clover, whose death the Inquisition had just found him responsible for. Crowds gathered outside the court daily, while newspapers provided extensive coverage of the proceedings. Cream had assembled a team of four lawyers, including Gerald Gagan, a seasoned barrister leading the defense. Gagan began by scrutinizing the prosecution's case, challenging the eyewitness testimony of various Lambeth women. The prosecution's evidence came straight from the inquest into the murder of Matilda Clover that found Cream responsible. To cast doubt on the cause of Matilda Clover's death, Gagan called Francis Coppin and Robert Graham, sorry, Dr. Robert Graham, to reassert their belief that she had succumbed to excessive drinking rather than strychnine poisoning. Then Dr. Thomas Stevenson, the chemist who had identified strychnine in Matilda's remains, took the stand. He was nervous and defensive, and his credibility wavered under cross-examination. Gagan probed Stevenson's testimony, highlighting the rapid onset of strychnine's effects and questioning how Matilda Clover could have survived for hours if she had been poisoned. Stevenson suggested sleep may delay strychnine's action, but he later acknowledged that opium or morphine could also achieve this delay. However, he had found no evidence of these drugs in Matilda's remains. Gagan also inquired about diseases affecting the spine, proposing them as an alternative cause of Clover's violent spasms. Stevenson agreed that it was possible, but such diseases were difficult to detect in exhumed bodies. The prosecutor attempted to restore confidence in Stevenson's findings, reiterating the discovery of a sixteenth of a grain of strychnine in Matilda's remains and the swift death of a frog that had been injected with her bodily fluid. Stevenson maintained that these cumulative factors led to his conclusion that strychnine was the cause of Matilda Clover's death. The outcome of Cream's murder trial hinged on a pivotal legal issue whether the prosecution could present similar fact evidence that implicated Cream in crimes not directly on trial. The defense contended that Matilda Clover died of natural causes, while the prosecution argued that introducing evidence of other poisonings and attempted murder was crucial to establish a pattern of behavior pointing to Cream as her killer. Justice Hawkins ruled in favor of allowing the similar fact evidence, emphasizing its relevance in establishing motive. The jury would ultimately determine its significance to the murder of Matilda Clover. During the trial, Louisa Harvey testified about Cream's attempt to offer her pills, providing incriminating evidence that placed the murder weapon in Cream's hands. The jury heard about the gruesome deaths of Ellen Donworth, Alice Marsh, and Emma Shrivel, as well as the fact that Laura Sabatini identified the blackmail letters that she had written on Cream's request. Surprisingly, no insanity defense materialized as no alienists believed that Cream, a calculating and cold-blooded killer, was mentally unfit. 
Russell presented the prosecution and swiftly summarized the case. Witnesses linked Cream to Clover, and a letter in his handwriting indicated prior knowledge of her poisoning. Russell emphasized Cream's suspicious behavior with Louisa at the Thames Embankment and defended Dr. Stevenson's findings regarding the lethal dose of poison in Matilda's body. He urged the jurors to deliver a guilty verdict. The trial was at a critical juncture, with the fate of Cream hanging in the balance. Days later, Cream, looking slightly less composed than usual but still confident, took his place in the dock as the trial resumed. He had reportedly slept well the previous night and expressed optimism about being acquitted. At 1.45 p.m., the jurors returned with a verdict. The foreman declared Cream guilty of the murder of Matilda Clover. Remarkably, Cream displayed no visible reaction. His calm and indifferent demeanor maintained throughout months of court proceedings remained unchanged. This marked his second murder conviction in just over a decade. Following the verdict, a clerk asked Cream if he had anything to say before the court imposed the death penalty. Cream slowly shook his head. Justice Hawkins, before delivering his sentence, described the murder as torture and an unparalleled atrocity. The judge then stated that this was a crime that could only be made up for by Cream's death. And with that, he sent Cream back to jail to await his execution. Cream awaited his fate in a small, dimly lit stone cell measuring 14 by 8 feet. Coconut matting covered the floor, offering a bit of insulation against the cold. The cell held minimal furnishings, a small table, a stool, a bed, a Bible, and a hymn book. There was a window high up on the wall, strategically placed to prevent prisoners from witnessing the execution shed in the prison courtyard. This shed was where Cream was slated to meet his end at 9 o'clock on the morning of November 15th. Cream had defiantly declared to the guards that they would never hang him shortly after the verdict. Consequently, he was placed under constant surveillance to prevent any suicide attempts. His gold-framed glasses were confiscated and replaced with horn-rimmed ones to prevent him from using them to harm himself. He was even provided with wooden utensils for meals and given a quill instead of a steel pen when he requested writing materials. On November 15, 1892, Thomas Neal Cream rose from bed around 7 a.m. He appeared pale and haggard after a restless night. Cream had a small breakfast and dressed in the same outfit he had worn during his trial. The prison chaplain arrived at 8 o'clock, dressed in white vestments, and spent 45 minutes with Cream, who said little during their meeting. Cream made a brief statement, resembling a confession, but without providing details, and he prayed for forgiveness. At three minutes till nine, prison officials, including the executioner, entered Cream's cell. The executioner secured Cream's arms behind his back with leather straps. Cream thanked the officials for their kindness before they moved through a dark passageway called Dead Man's Walk to reach the gallows shed on the opposite side of the courtyard. Despite the rain, a large crowd had gathered outside Newgate Prison, with estimates reaching up to 5,000 people, making it the largest assembly for a hanging since public executions were banned in the 1860s. The mood was strangely festive, with police struggling to maintain order. Inside the shed, a rope hung from a heavy chain bolted to a beam. Cream was strapped at the legs and had a white hood placed over his head. The executioner tightened the noose around Cream's neck. As the prison bell tolled at nine, the executioner pulled a lever, causing the trapdoor beneath Cream to open. Cream fell five feet, breaking his neck instantly. The prison doctor confirmed his death and a black flag was raised above the prison, signaling the completion of the execution. The crowd outside erupted in cheers and applause. Cream's body remained suspended for an hour before being buried beneath the flagstones in Dead Man's Walk. The following day, official announcements of Cream's execution were posted outside the prison. One news report said, the wretched murderer of lost women had met his end, bringing his rampage to a close. The successful resolution of the Lambeth poisoning case was a significant achievement for the Metropolitan Police, especially after the failure to apprehend Jack the Ripper. 
The theory that Thomas Neal Cream was Jack the Ripper was fueled by a rumor that his supposed last words were, I am Jack. These words were allegedly heard by the men present at his execution, and this created debate among many Ripperologists. However, his involvement in the Ripper crimes has been largely debunked by historians and experts. Cream was incarcerated in a Chicago prison during the Ripper murders, and the modus operandi of the two killers was quite different. However, many do posit that he could have paid the Chicago prison to release him early and that records were not well kept at that time. Still, the connection remains in popular Ripper mythology. And there are suggestions that Cream might have been inspired by Ripper's crimes that targeted vulnerable sex workers. There are few remaining physical traces of Cream's life. Some notable locations associated with him still stand, including Chalmers Church in Quebec City where he once worshipped, and the Boone County Courthouse in Belvedere, Illinois, where he was tried for murder. Cream is buried in an unmarked grave in London's Municipal Cemetery in Section 339. One of the most haunting reminders of Cream's gruesome crimes can be found in a cemetery in Garden Prairie, Illinois, where a weathered headstone marks Daniel Stott's grave with the inscription, Poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. If any of our listeners have ever visited any of these locations and have pictures, we'd love to see them, so send them to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. We hope that you enjoyed this journey back in time to revisit the notorious Thomas Neal Cream for this spooky season edition of True North True Crime. We will be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay spooky. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.